If you order up delivery from a restaurant you've never been to, if you're like me, you're going to imagine what that restaurant looks like. So in your mind's eye, maybe you see a modest neighborhood bistro on a side street, not too far away from where you live, filled with people eating dinner. But for all you know, the restaurant is just a website and a menu. For all you know, it could have come from some nondescript commercial kitchen, a kitchen anywhere within delivery distance of where you live. On this episode, Meredith Sandland, COO of Kitchen United. It's a company that would like to bring a virtual kitchen to your city. Meredith and I sat down recently in front of an audience in Las Vegas, and if you know me, I'm a goofball. So that's why I forced Meredith to say, Live from Las Vegas, it's where we buy. That's right, you're listening to Where We Buy. It's the show about the things we buy and the places we buy them. My name is James Cook, and I research retail and real estate for JLL. We are recording live in front of a studio audience at the Las Vegas Convention Center. We're on the stage at Recon, which is the world's largest gathering of retail real estate people. Where We Buy is a show where we talk with retail experts and visit shopping spots across the nation. All right, today, Meredith, COO, Kitchen United, welcome. Let's start super simple. What is Kitchen United? Kitchen United is a commercial kitchen that's designed for off-premise consumption. Uh, we believe that consumers increasingly want the convenience of being able to eat food wherever they happen to be. And that the existing restaurant real estate that's out there is not suited to enable that. So uh, our business is completely and totally optimized for off-premise consumption, whether that's takeout, catering, or delivery. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about the facility. And you guys have one that's open right now? We have two open, one in Pasadena and one in Chicago. Okay, and are both very similar or are there some differences? Uh, they're a little bit different. Both of them are former uh, cooking schools, so they're a little bit different from how we'll roll out as we go forward and, and custom purpose-build our locations. They uh, share in common that they have about 10 to 15 kitchens in each location, and uh, then the food is brought out uh, packaged to go, so takeout, catering, or delivery. And it's either picked up, therefore, by, uh, you know, a brand employee who's a catering driver or one of the delivery services um, or consumers who are doing what I call self-delivery or takeout. So I'm sitting at home on Grubhub or something like that, and I'm ordering from a restaurant uh, that's in, in Kitchen United. Do I know that it's, no, it's just that restaurant, it's that local, whatever, taco place. That's right. Yeah. So that's awesome. And let's say I want to go there. Can I walk up and order? Is there like a window I can order at? Uh, yes, you can. So I think when we started the business, we imagined that uh, truly it was a ghost kitchen in the sense, a dark kitchen, a virtual kitchen in the sense that uh, it's just preparing food. It's packaged to go and a delivery driver will take it away. And, uh, you know, we were sitting in our Pasadena location, which was the first to open, and consumers kept walking by saying, what is this? Can I get food here? What do you serve? And we thought, mm, we should probably help these people because it's a really bad experience for a consumer to walk into a place where food is being prepared and tell them, I'm sorry, you need to go home and order it off Grubhub. So you've got kind of an area set up where people, uh, you have, is it just a... Um 
like a kiosk kind of point of sale setup? Yep. So they can order on a kiosk. Our belief is that uh, we should make it as easy as possible for consumers to do whatever consumers want to do. And so they can order from our kiosk if they walk in. They can order from the restaurant web- website. They can order from a Grubhub or a DoorDash or an Uber Eats. Um, however they want to engage with the brand, all of those things are good. Our job is to combine those orders into one single order flow and then produce it uh, in the kitchen uh, via our restaurant members. And do you have a sense, I would, I would imagine the vast majority of sales are through delivery for your for your members? Yes, absolutely. So probably not a lot. Some walk-up sales, but not you a know, ton. It's been more than we expected, um, but yeah, the majority is via the Either delivery or catering. So why would why would a restaurateur choose to come to Kitchen United as opposed to opening their own uh, restaurant storefront somewhere? Well, I think that um, a couple things are happening. Number one, the consumer is changing. Consumers are demanding uh, this convenience in the form of food coming to them. And if no one is eating on-premise, why are you designing a business model around on-premise consumption? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and so from an economic standpoint, it's much more efficient to come into a purpose-built place um, that has the economics set up for delivery. Um, but also uh, just process-wise, I mean, you think of most restaurants, for those of you who are listening that are restaurant people, you know that these are finely tuned machines. And a good restaurant doesn't just happen. You think through every aspect of it from design to operations to how the food comes together. And when all of a sudden you introduce a new demand stream into a place that was not designed for that demand stream, you end up with chaos, right? So um, I'm sure you've all had this experience as consumers walking into a restaurant uh, that was not designed to handle delivery or off-premise, and there's bags everywhere, and there's people standing around, and it's total confusion, and how do you get to the hostess? And you just want to come in and have a great dining experience, um, which will continue to happen. There will continue to be sit-down restaurants where people walk in and have a great experience. Um, but those two modes or channels are so different in terms of how they are serviced. It just doesn't make sense to have them in the same building. So your background, you came from Taco Bell, right? Mm-hmm. So... And we're not talking specifically about Taco Bell, but we'll just talk about like large chains in mm-hmm. general. Would they benefit from also opening, in addition to their traditional locations, also open delivery only uh, locations? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have had several large chains tell us that if we were to open right next to their existing four wall space, they would still go into our space. And that is because this operational reason, they know that they're... Um, Existing four walls are designed for a totally different person and they're being overwhelmed by uh, off-premise demand that the building and the process was never designed for. What's the the common thread? What kinds of restaurants are seeing the most off-premise demand? Do you see a, a thread there? You know, it's interesting because there are mom and pops who have 40% off premise and there are big chains who have 20% off premise and, uh, and then vice versa. There's folks who've decided they're not going to go after it at all. And the common thread really seems to be an understanding of the consumer, uh, where the consumer's going, what they want and how to service them and how to, um, market to that new demand, reach that person and make that process of order to delivery. Uh, as easy as possible for the consumer. From the research that I've done, and I'm not an expert, but the research I've done into third-party delivery apps is they take a pretty big cut of the sale. Then they're also charging an additional fee to the consumer, right? Sometimes, yep. So 
in the end, it's almost like these third-party orders um, can be unprofitable for the restaurateur. Is that what you've heard? So I think it depends on how you look at it. Uh, if you view it as, as a marginal sale, then it is profitable, right? Because your, your last dollar profit uh, as a retailer is so much higher than your average business, yeah? Um, so if you view it as a last dollar, uh, the marginal profit, even with the delivery fee, totally works out. Um, if you view it as the main mode of your business, then it does not. And so uh, when we think of designing the economics in a virtual kitchen setup, you, knowing that so much of it is going to go out the door via delivery and it will have fees associated with it, you have to design that uh, economics for the restaurant to make sense inclusive of that fee. So what kind of savings do you think your members get from choosing uh, to go with Kitchen United over going out and renting space on their own? So uh, we charge a membership fee instead. of We're not subleasing as a rent. Um, and that membership fee is inclusive of, yes, the underlying rent, but also a lot of services that wrap around that, including uh, most of the fixed labor of operating a restaurant. Uh, that we're either taking on that labor ourselves or, or solving via technology. Uh, we also include in that membership fee the utilities. So when you look across the total P&L, uh, folks are probably saving 10 to 15% uh, on their P&L, which is awesome. So uh, they're actually on a percentage basis more profitable to go into uh, a virtual kitchen than to build a four wall. So the only uh, the only thing they're providing as far as manpower is the people that cook the food. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah, they're very focused on what they do best, which is executing their menu. Gosh, they must love that, you know, because that's why you get into restaurants is to f- cook the food, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, and also the when I think of the three hardest things about being a restaurateur right now, number one is rising real estate and construction costs. Uh, number two is rising labor costs and the rising minimum wage. And then number three is the shift of the consumer from coming into your space where you control the brand and the data flow back and forth between the consumer and you don't pay a fee um, toward this model where the food is going out to the consumer and you're paying a fee through the third parties to, to bring you that consumer, right? Those three shifts fundamentally change the economics of running a restaurant. And so a virtual kitchen is, yes, in many ways, operationally optimized to serve this demand, but it's also economically optimized to serve this demand. What do you think is driving that growth in off-premise sales? Is it the technology that makes it easier or is it a change in, I don't know, you know, the new generation? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, back when Amazon Prime came out, I don't know if you had this experience, but I did. My, my husband was a early adopter of Amazon Prime and I thought, well, who would pay $79 to have things shipped to them in two days? That's crazy. Just wait five days, like plan in advance. And now, like my parents use it, like everyone uses it, right? And I think, um, I think we're at a similar stage with food where, you have some early adopters at this point in time who are very used to just getting whatever they want when they want it and have it show up. And that doesn't mean they don't want to go into a restaurant and have an experience. Um, they're still going out. And I'm sure you see in the data that millennials spend more on food than ever. Um, they tend to spend it on restaurants, less so on grocery. Uh, so the behavior of going out, it's not like they're stopping doing that and they just want to stay home. I think there's a misnomer that they're like, oh, they just want to Netflix and chill. They can't be bothered to go to some place where they have to 
you know, look someone in the eye. Um, and that's not the case. I think, you know, they're having whatever experience they're having at home, playing with their kids or playing a video game or Netflix and chill, whatever it might be. And they don't want to stop that experience to go get food or to make food. And so they have it brought to them. And part of that is the consumer. And then that's totally enabled by a new mode of technology that lets them engage with restaurants in a way that previously was impossible. So it sounds like Kitchen United is definitely ready to try to to capitalize on this shift. So let's talk a little bit about growth plans. So I, I was doing a little bit of research. So you guys have some new locations announced, right? So we have the two that are open. Uh, we have three under construction in uh, Columbus, Ohio, Atlanta, Georgia, and Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, Austin is probably the next that will go under construction in Texas. Uh, and then we probably have 15 sites in total that um, have potential to open this year and uh, big growth aspirations after that. Being a research guy, I'm thinking about, ooh, how did they pick these cities? And, uh, you know, I think about um, a place like Austin, for example, or Atlanta. You know, all of these are foodie cities. Is that is that what drove it? They are foodie cities. Um, I think, you know, our number one criteria is probably density at this point because we are at an early adoption phase in delivery and a um, country that's a little further along the adoption curve, someplace like Dubai or maybe Western Europe or Hong Kong, they uh, are somewhere between 30 and 70% of total restaurant sales are going out the door via delivery, takeout, catering. In the U.S., X pizza that's sub 10%. So you can see there's a huge amount of growth yet to be had. So if you think it's crazy walking into a restaurant and seeing all those bags on the counter today, like it's only going to get crazier. Nevertheless, we're at the very beginning of that. And so when you uh, go into a market, first of all, you want markets where people are already engaged in that behavior. Um, And then secondly, you want markets where there's just a lot of people. um, And then it will grow very quickly over time after that. When I think it's interesting, you're bringing up pizza. So when I think about delivery, I only order delivery for pizzas because that is a food that's so well suited to delivery. But I've ordered burgers and they're soggy and all that. Do you guys have technologies that you look at to help these orders when they're delivered, when this is food, food is delivered, that it's fresh when it arrives? Yeah, so we spend a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, because of our business model, our restaurant members truly run their own businesses, right? So they're responsible for figuring out their menu and determining their pricing. And all, like we don't get involved in telling them how to run their businesses. Uh, but we absolutely will make options available to them to help them improve some of these things. And I think uh, we are an expert in fulfilling delivery for restaurant demand. And so we want to share that with all of our partners. So what kinds of services, you know, if all they have to do is show up and cook the food, um, what's your package of tools that you're offering? Like, does it include marketing stuff? Uh, we can help with marketing. Yep. Um, some l- larger brands probably uh, don't need that, but some smaller brands. I mean, we've had brands in our uh, facilities where, you know, they've got the same person who invented the menu, who's also cooking, who's also doing the marketing, right? And that guy is just stretched really thin. He could probably use the help even if he's brilliant, right? Uh, we think of the restaurant and the fixed labor associated with wanting, running a restaurant, having a manager on staff, having someone in the front of the house, uh, having someone uh, run food, things like expedite the food. Um, those are things that we would take on so that the cooks can stay on the line and focus on cooking the food. Do you have or have you considered having like um, your own um, uh, your own delivery app uh, or maybe like a white label app that brands could 
you know, so people could avoid paying the, you know, delivery costs? So we uh, currently have a website. We don't have an app. Uh, we also have uh, what we would call a widget or essentially um, the ability for a restaurant to put uh, an order button on their web on their own website. Uh, but that's not the focus of the business. The focus of the business is real estate. So what's an example what's a, an example of a member that you're especially fond of that's got good food that seems to be doing well because they're a part of uh, Kitchen United? Like maybe a favorite place you like to order from? Hmm. Uh, let's see. My current favorite is uh, in Pasadena, probably Halal Guys. Uh, okay, I've heard of them. Yeah. Opened up there, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago. And uh, good, fresh, healthy Mediterranean food. So that's probably my current favorite. And that's uh, Halal Guys. That's a, um, not a huge, but that's a chain. So that's a great example um, of taking a national brand and, and using that, um, that delivery-only model. So let's think about the future a little bit. Um, I don't know. Let's say 10 to 15 years in the future. Are we going to get to a point where people are ordering delivery for other foods as much as they are for pizza right now? Or how do you think that's going? You think so? I think absolutely. Um, I have a saying that delivery is the new drive through And if you think about why does the drive through exist? Well, because it's super convenient. But if you could have anything you want brought to you, why would you go to a drive through or get pizza? Because now you can have anything. It's amazing. I always avoid the drive. This is a total aside, but I always avoid the drive through because I feel like they mess up my order half the time. And I have to pull over and walk around and go back in. Huh. Huh. I think that's more about you than it is about the Oh, it's definitely about me, <laughs> Meredith. This is, drive-thrus are great. I'm just a weirdo. Um, the future seems to be in more delivery, more convenience. Um, what kind of new technologies should we expect that will enable that? I mm. mean, that can help delivery be more efficient more safe, more friendly? Yeah, so I think um, the first thing is the delivery networks today, and you brought up the, the point about how expensive they are. Part of that is because they're doing point-to-point deliveries. Uh, so they are literally picking up at one restaurant and taking to one house, which is the least efficient delivery network you could possibly create, right? It's just extremely expensive. And something like a Kitchen United model allows them to do a many-to-many delivery, um, so they could pick up five different orders and take them to five houses that are close to each other, uh, which is a much more efficient model, right? So if you start with something like that, all of a sudden, then you can start applying technology to that. So that's where you end up in the, you know, the drones and the self-driving cars. And How does the Kitchen United model make many-to-many more feasible? Because it's more, the restaurants are more dense. The restaurants are more packed. dense. Okay, yeah. cool. So you guys going to develop an algorithm to solve that then? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, so what about, uh, have you guys looked at all in these, um, you know, delivery vehicles that also have like pizza ovens mm. in them? Mm-hmm. And like, so you're kind of cooking as you go to deliver the food. Have you guys seen any of that stuff? I uh, certainly have seen it. I think um, it, the amazing thing about restaurants is that each type of food has its own manufacturing process, right? So that works really well for pizza, but how would you do a salad in, I don't know, maybe someone just hasn't come up with it yet and they put, will. I'm going to put a salad bar in the in back of my car. Yeah, <laughs> in my trunk. <laughs> or, or, you know, those hot dog rollers, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. I can always have some sausages rolling just going in the back. All the time. Yeah. You know, that's how I'm going to solve the, the future of food. 
Um, well, Mer uh, Meredith, thank you so much for joining me uh, today. It's been actually absolutely wonderful to learn more about Kitchen United, and yeah, I really appreciate fun. your time. As I was talking with Meredith about ghost kitchens, I started to realize that in order to really shake things up, you have to rid yourself of preconceived notions, like assuming that a restaurant always has to have a counter and a place for people to eat. I realized there's a whole lot of assumptions that we have about the way things are supposed to be, assumptions that smart people are going to come along and challenge. Who are those people that are out there challenging assumptions? Well, I'm out there trying to find them every week, so keep listening to this podcast, and uh, you and I will discover that together. Many thanks to ICSC for giving us a venue to record our podcasts at, at Recon, and we hope to continue that partnership in the fall. I think we're going to do some more live podcasts at the New York Conference at the Javits Center. I was just in downtown Detroit checking out all the new retail that has been popping up there recently. My friend Mark Eggetts gave me a tour. I was telling you, I think it's probably been four or five years since I've been here. So what's the biggest change? Probably the influx of people living downtown. So this is Woodward? Yeah, we're on Woodward Avenue, downtown. We've got the Shinola Hotel. I see a Shinola store, Le Labo, Madewell. Uh, we have Lululemon behind us, WeWork, uh, Warby Parker. Uh, John Barbados, I think, has been here a few years. Being from Detroit, uh, it made sense for him to open a shop here. What was this like 10 or 15 years ago? Well, actually even longer. Uh, it's been, for the most part, boarded up. Yeah, for I would say almost 50 years, Woodward and the retail um, part of Detroit didn't exist. What you just heard was some audio from a short five-minute video that we took. It's a video highlighting our Detroit retail tour, and you can watch it all. I'm going to put a link to the video in the show notes for this episode, or you can go to the following website. It's bit.ly forward slash Detroit Retail, all one word, bit.ly forward slash Detroit Retail. More videos are coming. They're like little mini episodes of the podcast. But what's cool about them is you get to show off all that visual stuff that I can only describe in audio format. So in order to see them, the best place is to follow me on LinkedIn, search for James Cook, JLL, and click follow. Over the weekend, I have been reliving the past. That's right, I've been binging the newest season of Stranger Things, and I am delighted to see the Starcourt Mall in its full 1985 glory, and man, it looks good. JCPenney, B. Dalton, Radio Shack, Claire's, Sam Goody, they even have a hot dog on a stick. They have my go-to 80s number one fave, Orange Julius. Hawkins, Indiana, not unlike Pawnee, Indiana, is a fictional town, but even fictional towns have to be filmed somewhere. Starcourt Mall is actually Gwinnett Place Mall near Atlanta, which did open in 1984. All of this got me thinking about great moments in mall film history. One moment that was referenced in Stranger Things was from 1985's Back to the Future, which featured the J.C. Penney parking lot at 
either the Twin Pines Mall or the Lone Pine Mall, depending on which time stream you're in. And that served as a location for the world's first successful time travel experiment. And that was actually filmed at Puente Hills Mall in the City of Industry, California. Another favorite of mine is from 1978. It's George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. That's where a band of zombie survivors hole up in the Monroeville Mall near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And as any horror lover will tell you, the film is actually a thinly veiled critique of American consumerism. If you're watching Stranger Things, you'll know that the Starcourt Mall serves as the stage where all of the action takes place. And another great example of a film where the mall is the center of the action is from 1997, Jackie Brown. Quentin Tarantino took an Elmore Leonard novel that was originally set in Southern Florida and moved it to Southern California. The Del Amo Mall, as they call it in the movie, it's actually Del Amo Fashion Center in Torrance, is on screen in this movie for over 30 minutes of film time. You've got multiple characters, good, bad, in between. They're all chasing a half a million dollar bag of cash. And the scene when Pam Greer passes the bag over to Bridget Fonda in the fitting room it's like the crux of the movie. And it's in the movie, it's the fictional Billingsley department store. Well, Billingsley was actually the Macy's at Del Amo. They just rebranded it for the movie. So having just told you that Jackie Brown has the best mall action of any movie, now I have to take that back because I'm realizing the greatest mall moment in film action history came in 1980. It was filmed at the Dixie Square Mall in Cook County, Illinois, Blues Brothers. In the movie Elwood, Dan Aykroyd is pulled over for running a red light with his brother in the car. The brothers speed away and they crash into the side of the Dixie Square Mall, slamming the car right through the wall of the Toys R Us. An insane, absurd car chase with the police ensues inside the mall and the Blues Brothers still take time to comment on the stores as they drive past them. The new Oldsmobiles are in early this year. Dixie Square closed back in 1978, which is why it was available to be used for filming in the movie. It was a long-standing Cook County dead mall. It wasn't demolished until 2012. It's no secret that the Duffer Brothers, the team behind Stranger Things, drew inspiration from the great Fast Times at Ridgemont High from 1982. That movie follows the lives of Southern California high school students. Many of them either work or hang out or do both at the mall. Interiors for that movie were shot at Sherman Oaks Galleria, and exteriors were shot at Santa Monica Place. Interestingly, both of those centers have since been renovated and turned into open-air centers. That era in the 80s, it was a time when, for a certain segment of society, youth culture began and ended at the mall. It was both created there and consumed there. 
And that trend continued into the 90s. And uh, you see that in the Kevin Smith cult classic Mallrats from 1995. It is perhaps the apex of 90s mall culture on film. Mallrats is set in New Jersey, but was actually filmed at Eden Prairie Center in Minnesota. Mallrats was self-aware and jaded in a way that Ridgemont High was not. I guess that's because a decade later in the 90s, we were all kind of over everything. Malls were and are one of the stages upon which we lived and live our lives. And that nostalgia bomb that was Stranger Things reminded me of how important the mall was. Back then, for many young people, including myself, it was the source of culture. It's where we found the cool music, the cool clothes, the posters. But along the way, a lot of us grew up. And even before the internet became the new originator of culture, some of us realized the best music wasn't necessarily to be found at the Sam Goody. The best movies weren't necessarily at the multiplex. Today, our culture's grown up a lot. There is no longer a single monoculture that malls can hope to represent. This is probably why department stores are in a bit of a pickle right now. But here's the thing. I know that malls today can maintain their relevance, and I'm seeing it out there. They can open up and renovate. They can become more like the cities that they once pulled us away from. They can add in new uses, apartments, hotels, offices. They can add in new art, art installations, expanding in what they offer with more cultures, different foods, different kinds of stores, more diversity overall. For malls to be grown up, they don't have to tell us what's cool anymore. In fact, they really can't tell us what's cool because we invented the internet for that and there's no going back. But they can open their doors, they can let us explore and allow us to find the cool, find the culture for ourselves. And when the zombie apocalypse does come, there's going to be no better place that you'd rather find refuge. If you've got a great example of a shopping place or a retailer out there that is creating new and interesting culture, give us a call and tell us about it. Call the Where We Buy hotline, leave a message, and we'll use your voice in an upcoming show. The number is 602-633-4061. Be sure to tell us your name and where you're calling from. We've got a big list of interesting episodes coming your way. We're going to be talking about recycled clothing with Fair Harbor, contextual commerce from Batch, and I'm going to the most delicious place in Toronto, Assembly Chef's Hall. And you don't want to miss any of it, so just subscribe to Where We Buy. Open up your podcast app on your phone or Spotify, search for Where We Buy, and hit subscribe. Or you can always find us on the web. Our website is wherewebuy.show. Or if you've got an Amazon Alexa device, tell her to enable the Where We Buy skill.
A few quick shout outs today. First to Lauren Guzik. Lauren, thank you for listening to the show and for connecting with me. I really appreciate it. And also to my friends and coworkers, Katie Sershon and Arielle Weston, for giving me their commentary about the movie Mean Girls. And that commentary is coming up. Our theme music is Run in the Night by The Good Lords. Additional music featured on this episode, Escapade by Nocturne, Breakup Breakdown by Culla, Reverse by Culla, Western Shores by Philip Weigel, Neurosis of the Liver by Culla. All songs used under Creative Commons license. I was watching the movie Mean Girls over the weekend. Yes. And the mall scenes they claim are at Old Orchard. They are. But wrong. I looked it up. It was C.F. Sherway in um, in Canada. And when I was like what, 12 years old, we were all sitting in the movie theater watching it. It comes on the screen, and 12, you know, 12 year old girls all of us stand up and scream like, "That's not Old Orchard." Every Chicago. You lie. You lie. Hollywood lies. Well, anyone knows it's an outdoor mall, and that it's clearly an indoor mall if they shot in Mean Girls. Right. Yeah, it was we funny. I was mountains. like, why didn't they just give it a different name? Well, we're at Chicago Mall or something. But right. Who knows? Because Old Orchard's wow. the mall. Yeah. yeah. Of the North Shore. Although, if you were to talk to some people, they would say Oak Brook is the mall. For the West Side people.